So today marks the end of National Etiquette Week, a seven-day celebration of shoes thoroughly shined, cutlery used correctly, and doors held open. While the chivalry of standing up when a lady enters the room, the customs like the proper use of the salad fork or dressing for dinner are out of fashion, the rules of etiquette still underpin the behavioural norms of many of our everyday social interactions. As well as impressing and influencing others, good manners and correct etiquette demonstrate respect and infirm our intentions toward one another. While society has become more informal, we still dress and behave differently in certain situations. A job interview, a first date, a royal garden party, or even preaching in church. I am deliberately not wearing jeans or shorts uh, to make a slightly smarter pair of trousers from the preaching section of my wardrobe this morning. This is not because I believe that these trousers will impress God, or just because Zoe told me to, although she did, but because if I was dressed more informally, that might distract someone or stop you being able to concentrate on God's message for us this morning. And if you don't believe that people worry about such things, one of only three reviews ever posted of this church online is given over almost entirely to a rant about the preacher's hands being in their pockets during prayer. Etiquette, proper etiquette... They, by the way, it only gives us a two-star rating, that review. Uh, etiquette, or proper etiquette, is the expectation of adherence to just these kinds of subtle cultural cues even when they no longer hold any real meaning. For example, almost all of us will have exchanged a greeting uh, by shaking hands with someone on your way into church this morning. Dating back to 500 years BC, shaking hands is one of the oldest codified etiquettes or behaviours. And it's still facilitating our social interactions and communicates welcome some two and a half thousand years later. For the perfect handshake, the right hand is extended towards the recipient and across our own body. Originally, a gesture to show that my right hand was empty and no weapon could be drawn. We interlock hands, placing my palm against yours, proving neither of us are holding a knife, a knuckle duster, a rock, or any other small weapon. And then, adopting a firm but gentle, not crushing grip, we pump the other person's arm three times, a manoeuvre intended to dislodge any weapons up the other person's sleeve. So the ritual we exchanged at the church door this morning was designed almost 500 years before Christ's birth as the equivalent of passing through airport security. By this morning, I promise it's just a friendly greeting and you are indeed very welcome here this morning. You see, most of the rules of etiquette are based on something which originally had real utility, real purpose and real meaning. But over time, they've become reduced to just some symbolic ritual, a shortcut that quickly communicates our intent or just signals good manners. And so this morning we're thinking specifically about prayer etiquette, those rituals and behaviours we use when we pray. It would be simpler if there were clear rules, perfect postures, a 
correct thing to do when we pray. The problem is none is listed in the Bible. Instead, in fact, it's full of seemingly conflicting prayer postures. In Genesis 17, Abraham fell upon his face before God. In Exodus 9, Moses prayed with his hands outstretched. In 1 Kings, Solomon kneels in prayer, and Elijah crouches low to the ground and puts his face between his knees in what is basically the brace position for an emergency landing. While we read of Isaiah and Samuel in books of the same name, both bowing down to worship and pray to God, and so on, and so on, and so on. Each of these many postures was indeed helpful and appropriate to their specific situation, but none of them was intended to form an etiquette, a ritual, an an incantation, or an invocation, which would guarantee us God's favour or command his immediate attention. So how should we pray? How do I know if I'm doing it right? Well, let's look at the example from this morning's reading, Daniel 6, a passage which goes into some considerable detail about how Daniel prays. Despite prayer being outlawed, Daniel still goes alone to his room, turns to face the holy city of Jerusalem, which for us, if you're interested, is sort of that way, gets on his knees and kneels down to pray three times a day. Daniel is clearly faithful to his God. And because of his faith, because he refuses to stop praying, Daniel falls foul of the satrap's deliberate and dastardly trap. The story lays out for us the impossible legal and moral bind of the king and the hopeless circumstances of Daniel's inescapable fate. It's clear that Daniel is loyal to the king. But neither the king nor the justice system can save him. He's bound by the small print of the law of the Medes and the Persians. Daniel's fate is firmly sealed by a giant boulder, and that itself is sealed by the king and all of his noblemen. Details included so that every reader knows that not even the survival techniques of Bear Grylls or all the magic and escapology of David Copperfield could get Daniel out of this particular escape room. It's designed to be literally impossible. But the book of Daniel is not a book about lion taming, palace politics, or puzzle solving, but about sovereignty. It's a tale of two kings. The satraps flatter their king in a power play of trickery, treachery, and legal skullduggery. Their praise of their earthly king is duplicitous and self-serving. In verse 6, they declared, tongue firmly in cheek, may King Darius live forever. And the king's moment of weakness and vanity giving in to their request renders him powerless. The king loves Daniel, but even the king is bound by his own law and is left this pitiful figure, hungry and humorless, anxiously pacing the corridors of his palace all night. There is no earthly chance of escape for Daniel and no legal way out for the king. I'm normally known as Dan, and if either my wife or my mother calls me Daniel, it means I'm in trouble, probably for going out in the wrong trousers. But the Hebrew name Daniel actually means God is my judge, not Zoe or my mother, but God is my judge. And even King Darius realizes that Daniel's fate no longer depends on him. Daniel has been faithful and God will be his judge in this story. I love the shout in verse 21, may the king live forever. May the king 
Daniel's voice declares praise to his God for victory over certain death. Compare his praise for his king with verse 6 and that hollow, self-serving praise of King Darius from his scheming satraps. Daniel is saved and instead it is the conspirator's fate that is sealed. The lions will not go hungry much longer. It was not what Daniel knew that saved him. This whole passage is not a story about politics or escapology, but about prayer and sovereignty. God is Daniel's judge. God is in control and able to save those faithful to him even from certain death. Daniel is saved by the king he prays to, by the God he knew, not what he knew. That's the sermon in a sentence this morning. Proper prayer etiquette is not about what you know, but who you know. Prayer is not knowing how, but knowing who, knowing him. That we may know God's sovereignty, goodness and faithfulness is the purpose of Daniel's story and indeed the entire Bible. The Bible is not written to make us religious or to give us rules and uh, rituals to follow. It's written to reveal who God is. That you and I may recognise his face, fall in love with his character and turn to him in prayer and praise. In respect of our prayer etiquette, this is not a book of how, it's the book of who. We don't have to fall upon our face to pray, but we pray to the same God that was faithful in his promises to Abraham. We don't have to lift our hands like Moses, but we are free to pray to the same God that rescued his people from slavery. We don't have to turn to face Jerusalem, but we pray with confidence to the God that saved his faithful servant, Daniel. They all prayed in different ways, but to the same God. When his disciples asked Jesus how they should pray, his response was to give them, as we know, the Lord's Prayer. But that wasn't all he said. First, he reminds them that knowing who they're praying to will impact the words that they choose. In Matthew 6, verses 7 to 14, again from the Message translation, we read, The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with, and he knows you and loves you. He knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply like this. Our Father in heaven. Now, I need to make clear that this church has many true prayer warriors and I can witness personally to the power of faithful and fervent prayers. Eugene Peterson's translation talks disparagingly instead about self-professed and self-obsessed prayer warriors who make a big show of loud public prayer and a great show of their own prayer etiquette. But I love the phrase he uses at the end. With a God like this loving you, That's the heart of prayer right there. With a God like this loving you, the etiquette of prayer is so very simple. Prayer works because of who he is, 
not anything we do. With a God like this loving us, we can pray very simply. Let that certainty and assurance release any doubts, any sense of inadequacy or concerns about mumbling or fumbling or stumbling. With a God like this loving us, a God like this longing for us, a God like this rooting for us, we don't pray to persuade him, but just to spend time with him. So is that it? Does anything we do make a difference when we pray? Actually, yes, it can. Just not to him, but to us. Prayer etiquette will not influence or impress God because God is not the problem here. I am the problem. I need to prepare my heart, improve my attitude, set aside my time, and once I have, work to avoid immediately getting distracted again. So if there is a pattern or posture or an etiquette for prayer, it's only to help us, not him. Because while God is not reluctant, I am. While God is not too busy, I am. While God is never distracted, I get distracted all the time. Our posture really makes no difference to God. But just like Abraham, Moses and Daniel, in different circumstances it may help me or simply be my natural response to close or open my eyes, to kneel, sit or stand, to put my hands together or to raise them, and even occasionally to adopt the brace position. But there is a temptation that if we find something that works, we start to repeat and then to ritualize it and then to rely upon it. You see, the danger of a formal prayer etiquette is we start placing importance on the preacher wearing the right trousers or miss the simple invitation to come face to face with the God whose hands flung stars into space because the worship leader has their hands in their pockets. Prayer is not something we incite or invoke with a ritual or inhibit with a social faux pas. When we pray... We're adding one more voice to the constant prayer cacophony of the glories of heaven. We're focusing one more pair of eyes on his face, turning one more pair of ears toward his voice, and tuning one more heart to the love and joy that resonates perpetually through every particle of the universe. Etiquette, manners, and elocution can change other people's opinion and attitude towards us. But while that can affect the outcome of a job interview, a mortgage application, or even a marriage proposal, it has no impact at all on God when we pray. Our posture in prayer is not to persuade him, but to prepare us. It is not about transmitting our requests more forcefully, but hearing him more sensitively. God is not waiting for me to dress up or to kneel down. The right clothes won't make us worthy. The right stance won't summon him. The right place won't find him waiting. And the right words are not some open sesame to transport us into his presence. Because prayer etiquette is not about knowing how. It's about knowing him. As Max Lucado wrote... Our prayers may be awkward, our attempts may be feeble, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference. That's the great hope and humility of prayer. You see, the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not the one who says it. Everything then that the Bible teaches us about prayer is to tell us about God, that we may have confidence in the character and consistency of the God
God who hears and answers our prayers. Prayer is tuning out all the distractions and tuning into the ever-present, all-pervasive, all-consuming, all-powerful love of God. A love that is not just there if we summon it correctly. A love that is not just there on Sundays. A love that is not just there when we're desperate, but a love that is here right now and always. So I want to encourage you this morning because you are brilliant at prayer and God loves it when you pray. There is no prayer etiquette and there are no bad prayers. The best time to pray is right now. The best place to pray is wherever you are. And the best words to pray are whatever is on your heart. So I want to stop speaking so we can start praying because what he has to say to us is so much better than anything I could say or have ever said.